TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to 100 Not Out, featuring your hosts, Dr. Damien Christoph and Marcus Pierce. Hello and welcome to 100 Not Out, a weekly show dedicated to helping you master the art of aging well. Marcus Pierce here with you, and you are in for a masterclass today. This is one for the advanced learners. We've had feedback that they want some nitty-gritty episodes on some pretty key topics, and today is gut health, and I go straight to the top to the number one gut health expert in the world, Dr. Damien Christoph, how are you, brother? Oh, PC. There'll be some people that are turning over going, Damo is not the number one. I'm definitely not the number one, but let me tell you, I know some stuff about the gut, and I'm happy to share what I know. And some of what I know has come from the books. Some of it's come from being in practice. Some of it's come from anecdote. And uh, so it's come from the research. So it's a collaboration. It's, you know, best available evidence is basically what that is. And so um, whenever you hear people say, oh, there's no research in that, it's not blah, 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 this is the best because we've got everything from client experience all the way through to practitioner experience and research and the books. So I'll do my best. I might get a few things wrong according to some other people, but this I know seems to work for me. Well, all I'm going to say is if you're not number one, And you don't have to answer this. If you're not number one, who is? I mean, it's a subjective list. I'm giving you the number one mantle. If I had major gut health issues, the very first person I'd be calling is Dr. Damien Christoph. So that's my two, Bobs. Um, so we're going to talk about um, upper gut, mid gut, lower gut, parts of the body that are in each of those three parts of the gut. For some people, they're like, oh, my gosh, we're even talking three parts of the gut. We are talking three parts of the gut. Um, We're talking all of the different symptoms that can be related um, to the area of the body or the area of the gut um, that is the issue. And again, this is around clarity as we get older because um, when people are listening to this, we may be on uh, the Greek island of Ikaria, also known as the island where people forget to die, but what you and I are now going to call the island with no gut health problems Uh, (laughs) because they don't even know what a gut health issue is yeah. And in the world that you and I are in, you know, a lot of people that we connect with have a gut health issue. So yeah. how is it that on a small island in Greece, they don't even they don't even not even familiar with the vocabulary around gut health? Um, but here it's all the rage. Um mm. and I suppose, you know, is that normal? Where where to begin? I can pepper you with questions, but is there anything on that that you want to begin with before I start asking you all the hard questions? Yeah, well, there's a little question in that um, big monologue that you started with there. I have and- <laughs> lots of big monologues. There's a lot of big monologues coming out of my mouth. <laughs> there was a question in there, and you and you said where to begin, and uh, and this is where I, this is what I would say, like a little bit of perspective. So if we think about the island where people forget to die, Ikaria. Um, actually, I was chatting with some guys at the golf course today because I do play golf, and uh, these guys they're all Greek pharmacists. Yeah, hold on, hold on, hold and- on. Stop the press. Stop the press. Yeah, you play golf. <laughs> are you serious i never that no. you didn't know there you go oh. there you go that's hilarious uh so shout out to minnis and george and uh 
Zoltan, um, all you boys, uh, they, well, so one of them said, oh, where are you going? And I said, going to your career. And he goes, where's that? And I said, oh, it's about 30 k's off the coast of Turkey. He goes, oh, Turkey, that side, we don't talk about that sort of Greece, that side of Greece. So we go, oh, you guys are just snobs, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, mate. And they go, nah, nah, just ribbing you. They're excited. They think it's fantastic. But <clears throat> what I was um, thinking about was that their diet and their lifestyle hasn't changed for thousands of years. Stuck in the dark their ages. Genes, their genes are so dialed in. Their way in which their brain accesses their DNA, their nervous system accesses their DNA to program for whatever environmental stressor, it's so highly refined. It's so specific to their environment. Their environment is unchanged for such a long period of time. Now, there's not a lot of medication use over there. We know that. What's the statistic around medication use in your career? I don't know the exact statistic around medication use, but I do know that they have one nursing home on the island. Um, they've got, and there's, I think, 12 people on there and a lot of their children live on the mainland. Um, yep. We have we have spotted a chemist, maybe two chemists on the yep. island, and, and there are doctors, but... They are so, like you said, they are so dialed in that they would always go to herbal teas or manuka honey. Even this morning, um, we had Tommy had a sore throat and he had some manuka honey, and and I was like, Darby, he was like, but manuka honey, it's going to give you cavities, Tommy. I was like, stop tormenting your brother, Darby. He's just having manuka honey. He's like, you're going to the dentist, and I was like, in Korea they have honey. I was being a little kid now. I was like, in Korea they have honey every day all the time and he's like no they don't they don't go to the dentist with cavities and i was like no they have it as a medicine and i, I say this sorry i'm a bit peppered up by the my morning argument with my 10 year old but in ikaria they would default to the herbal teas the tinctures that are the, the tinctures are actually you know a dipped in olive oil like the sage is sitting in the olive oil for 30 days type thing um mm. they would go natural first what we would call they still are fascinated by chiropractic aren't they because there is not one chiropractor on the island and when damo is 60 and he's had enough of melbourne he's going to live in ikaria um 10 years time when we when we get to 560 uh, sorry 1060 episodes i'll be there you'll be there um but they're very naturally minded aren't they and i think like you said it's because they've got these traditions around food as medicine that almost mm. um, prevents the desperation to go down the medical path, but not to say that, you know, that they definitely still go to the doctor, but just not in the same, I suppose, dependency that a lot of us in the, um, not the Western world, whatever, whatever we are, they don't, yeah, they're a bit different. Cool. So to answer that question, you don't know the medication statistic there, right? So we just know they don't use much medication. <laughs> so the point that I was going to say was <laughs> don't ask me any questions. Right? I'm too chatty today. Just work your magic. So they're not using lots of antibiotics. Their diet hasn't changed for thousands of years. For millennia upon millennia, their diets remained exactly the same. So their their body is so dialed in to their environment and it's unchanged. Fast forward. To us, like let's go back to the future to where we are right now and we've got antibiotics in our chicken. We've got antibiotics in our, you know, in our food all over the place. We're using chlorine in our water. Uh, we've got antibiotic, you know, utilisation if you've got a cold, um, you know, and then there's food avoidance. So there's trends in food. So you avoid certain foods because you've got a rash. 
you eat certain foods because you've got a rash. Uh, you, you've got all these sorts of, you know, kind of restrictive behaviors. Um, there's eating disorders, obesity, there's eating disorders um, of starvation. Um, and we've got all of this sort of psychological impact and stress and environmental influence and there's pollution all over the place. There's all of these things that are affecting the way in which our body reacts and manages our environment that the reaction to things that are um, foreign is exacerbated in our space compared to in that space where their nervous system, their body is dialed into their environment. Our body's trying to work out an ever-changing environment. It's very, very different. So um, our all of the stressors affect our gut and our microbiome versus, yeah, it's very different over there. Like even their wine has probably got beneficial bacteria in it, Saccharomyces, whereas our wine over here has probably had all the yeast taken out of it, you know, so... You know, it's it's quite different. I can't wait for some of that wine. Now, let's start with the upper gut. Now, we're not the world's longest podcast, and we could pretty much dedicate an hour to every single symptom related to the upper gut. But correct me if I'm wrong, because I've taken some notes on previous conversations you and I have had around this. The upper gut includes the stomach, the esophagus, the mouth, and the duodenum. Um, there may be other things involved. But symptoms include burping, indigestion, heartburn, reflux, um, burning sore throat that rising acid feeling can you talk to any one of those symptoms that you feel um is important today we probably don't have the time to talk about all of them but yeah for the sake of our listeners what 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 do you want to say around around um the upper gut and symptoms associated to that area yeah yeah okay cool so we can keep this pretty pretty lowbrow which is i think good but if we want to get into more detail, we did do a very detailed podcast, uh, which we can point people to because uh, it's a public podcast. Um, we just don't know so if, it's re- if it's released when we record this, but the laws of wellness yeah. for Zaparis yeah. lawyers uh, will have a conversation yeah. on this that may have more information. Yeah, we're going into more detail there. Um, but the upper gut, um, I'm pretty sure doesn't include the duodenum. I think it's actually part of the middle gut, but just as a correction, just in case someone's listening and going, no, these guys are wrong. He said he um, was the world's number one gut health expert. Yeah, <laughs> I put so, the duodenum in there, folks, not Damo. <laughs> <laughs> the duodenum is the start of the small intestine, right? So th- that's what I would call the middle gut. The upper gut kind of stops at the polar sphincter, um, which is where the stomach ends and the duodenum starts. So um, that's where we hear about duodenal ulcers or peptic ulcers, that sort of thing. So we hear about that sort of issue. Um Let's just talk about the common things that happen in the upper gut. So remembering that you've got to chew your food to coat your food with saliva, and saliva initiates the digestion of carbohydrates and protein. And so the chewing, the mastication of the food, um, coats the food in saliva. So you've got a bolus of food that goes down through the esophagus, slips, slips down into a pool of acid, and that acid is hydrochloric acid. And the stomach lining is designed in a way that it can handle hydrochloric acid. The esophagus, which is the extension of the mouth, goes down to the stomach, is is blocked off by a sphincter called the esophageal sphincter. And the esophageal sphincter tries to keep acid out of the esophagus because the esophagus isn't designed to have lots of acid in it. But from time to time, when we burp or we vomit, uh, or if we get a little bit of heartburn, some of that acid will come up into our esophagus. It's uncomfortable, um, but it generally doesn't cause a problem if it's just in the short term. But long term, um, acid exposure in the esophagus 
can result in ulceration of the esophagus, inflammation of the esophagus, and that's known as esophagitis. And so we can get a bit of that. So the primary causes of rising acid or gas into the esophagus is really um, high acid in the gut as a result of usually infection. Um, and I'm, I'm prefacing this because obviously as a ARPA registered practitioner, I can't be diagnostic in how I'm talking about There's this. Nothing prescriptive be, here, folks. General in nature. Yeah, it's all general. Um, and then the other cause of um, of this rising burning or acidity that people would feel in their esophagus um, would be low acid in their gut. And so the way in which you can determine whether or not you've got high acid or low acid in your gut is if you get heartburn and indigestion away from your meal, so you haven't eaten for a long time but you're getting heartburn and indigestion, that's more likely to be a high acid environment. Um, and that would be where you've got probably some kind of infection. So we see that the cause of the um, peptic ulcer uh, is the Helicobacter pylori um, a bacteria or parasite. And so that can cause um, injury to the gastrointestinal system and the acid makes it worse and it's very, very painful. So often what would happen there is if you went to a doctor, you went through the medical profession to to manage that, they'd give you antacids because they would suspect that you've got high acid as a result of your symptoms. Now, the antacid actually makes the environment better for the bacteria to grow so or for that infection to grow and to proliferate. So your body's own response to kill that infection is to increase the acid. But if you take a tablet to lower the acid, then you're probably just trying to band-aid the symptom and not really get on top of the cause. So to get on top of the cause, you'd undergo some kind of antimicrobial therapy. Um, if you went to the doctor, that would be um, antibiotics. You usually call it the triple antibiotic therapy. Um, you went to the naturopath, you'd get some herbs. You went to a Chinese medicine specialist, you'd get some herbs. Um, and there's different ways in which that can be managed. But the way in which I use it, I use herbs um, to help people out with this, and we do that for a period of time. And I use some colostrum to assist in the nourishment um, of the gastrointestinal system. We look at vitamin C and zinc because you need zinc to increase your acid levels in your gut. Um, and that'll improve your digestion. So there's, it's a bit of a process. The other thing, which is low acid, still presents with the same sorts of symptoms, but after a meal, you start to burp and have acid reflux. So it means that the meal's not digesting properly. And within 90 minutes, having consumed the meal, you still feel full and you're burping the taste of the meal that you just had. So <laughs> that's, that's a key sign, key symptom, that you're not digesting your food properly. It can't empty out through the bottom end of your stomach and go into the duodenum, the small intestine. Uh, and ideally, you'd be taking um, hydrochloric acid tablets to assist in that, or you'd use some fire tonic. Uh, we love fire tonic. Um, big shout out there for fire tonic or some apple cider vinegar. ACV, uh, yeah, some lemon yeah, yeah. juice. Yeah, all those right. sorts of things would increase your acid levels in your gut so you can assist in the digestion of your food. And that would then help to move through that bolus better digested into the small intestine because the bulk of the remainder of digestion is going to take place in the middle part of your gut as a result of the the enzymes that are secreted by the pancreas, pancre pancreatin. So you've got lipase, protease, and amylase. These enzymes come from the pancreas. They get released into the 
common bile duct, and they get sent out into the small intestine with bile that's been stored in your gallbladder, manufactured by your liver, to help break down your fats. So you've got all of these enzymes and all of this stuff that comes out in, the, in this upper part of the middle part of the gut, and everything that's coming out of the upper part of the gut emptying into the duodenum. It's all going to get coated in enzymes, and it's all going to start to get exposed to bacteria. And that hydrochloric acid that was in your stomach now gets neutralized by the bile and the salts that come into your small intestine as a result of the liver manufacturing the right stuff. So it's all kind of checks and balances happening at this part of the gut. You said this was a lowbrow back to basics conversation. This is blowing my mind and I feel like we've spoken about this multiple times over 10 years of personal and professional friendship and I just learn stuff all the time. So I have to ask, a question without notice because I'm now just thinking all these thoughts. If you've got a problem, and hopefully people that are listening are going, oh my gosh, okay, my problem is an upper gut problem because everything you just said is is me to a T, right? But now yeah. I'm going, if people have an upper gut problem, does that make it more or less likely that that upper gut problem is going to transition into a middle and lower gut? Like if it's stuffed at the very first step, does that yeah. mean that it's going to be compromised at step yeah. two and three? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you didn't digest stuff at the start, um, then your absorption of your nutrition will be poorer as it goes through. There's two things that can happen. If you're really, really stressed, then the undigested food particles will move through too quickly. And as a result of moving through too quickly, you're going to find yourself having undigested food in your stool. So your stools will be loose and you'll have undigested food in your stool. That's a problem. Um, That's malabsorption. That's what we're talking about there. So the common malabsorption profiles are FODMAPs and celiac disease. Um, some other people might have um, a casein intolerance or lactose intolerance, and they can cause malabsorption as well. Um, and, of course, celiac disease, which is a big deal. You know, that's, mm. a, that's a massive malabsorption. That's an allergy as well. So I'm sorry. Now you've just totally piqued my curiosity. So <laughs> now I want to know if someone, um, and this is not me asking for a friend, if someone has flatulence, <laughs> right? Yes, yeah which is a lower gut problem. Well, you would think it's a lower gut problem, yeah. Okay, yeah, this is my question. Yeah. Did that start in the upper gut? So is it, I'm like, is it better to have a lower gut problem because it's down there and does it like rise up? But then I'm like, no, but if it's, if it's, if you've got a problem at the end, then it's, it probably started at the beginning. Like it doesn't get to the end. Oh, again, I don't know. It doesn't get to the end and have the problem. Um, but is yeah. it, does it go, you know, upper gut, middle gut, lower gut, problem, 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 and it, or is it, can it be lower gut, then it impacts the middle gut, then it impacts it? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, it's, Yeah, well, it's an ecosystem, right? So if something's wrong at one point, um, then something's been wrong somewhere else. It's kind of like, I don't know, look at the environment. If something is going wrong with increased carbon in the atmosphere, um, that's going to impact you know, the temperature of the water, uh, and that could impact sea life and then the food chain for humans. So it's it's a long – the whole thing's out of whack if yes. one thing's out of whack. But what about something like um, – oh, I don't know. I, no, I was going to say worms. I was going to say like parasites. So yeah. for me, and again, my very base understanding, parasites could be something that – is it? am I getting confused? Like I could I could be in the wrong place at the wrong time and get parasites. 
Or is but that not? Two people could be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and one person gets it. Right. So yeah, parasite, this is what I'm curious about. This is the, yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah. A parasite is is something that's opportunistic, right? So yes. it finds an environment that it wants to live in or can live in, and then takes over. Like this is the same as a virus. You can have 20 people in a room, four people have COVID, two more people get COVID, and that's it. Mm. The most you know virulent, most dangerous bacterial virus in the planet. Um, only gets a few people out of that room, and that's it. And and you think to yourself, well, why is that? And if you go back to uh, Louis um, Louis Pasteur and is it Charles Beauchamp? I think it was Charles. You go let's ahead. Say, let's yeah. just say Pasteur and Beauchamp. They were trying to work out: is it the pathogen or is it the host? And Louis Pasteur did his tests, and he said, you know. Food goes off um, if it's exposed to bacteria, um, and so his whole thing was pasteurization. And then, and, and then he basically said, "Well, with pasteurization, we get things to live along, you know, longer, you know, and not go off." And so the assumption then was that it's the bacterium or the pathogen that causes the disease. And then what Beauchamp said is, it's not that by itself; it's not that in isolation. Of course, the bacteria's got to be there, but it's the host because if the host is in a compromised state, then the bacteria or the virus or the pathogen can live. If the host is strong, then the, vi- the virus, the bacteria or the pathogen can't live. And so if there's something that's wrong in that long tunnel called the alimentary tract, which is the gastrointestinal system, if that tract, if there's something wrong in it, somewhere along the line, then you're greater risk or there's a greater chance of something else going wrong. So if something's wrong in the upper gut, you could get something wrong like SIBO in the middle gut um, or you could get worms in the lower gut. And so like you've got these things that kind of will all play out due to vulnerabilities yeah. in different areas. And because I'm, I'm looking at the symptoms of the upper gut and I feel like socially they are seen as just like annoyances like Burping, yeah, indigestion, heartburn, bad breath, reflux, bad breath. They're kind of just like, oh yeah, I just I take this antacid or I take this or I do that. And yeah. it's not but what you're saying is like, no, we've got to see this from the wholeness of the environment yeah. rather than just the singularity of the symptoms. So um yeah. all right, cool. This is this is so good. Okay. So is there anything else that you want to talk about? Because I know you've weaved in conversations around the middle gut. Um, here we've spoken about parasites a bit and FODMAPs a bit. Is there anything else around the middle gut that you want to talk about that you think that people, um, you know, in the context of this conversation that, that we should make people aware of? Well, I think it comes down to timing. So you just want your food to stick around for long enough. So, uh, and this is that whole sesame seed challenge thing, PC, that I used to talk about a lot, you know, is you take a teaspoon of sesame seeds, put it into a glass of water, drink it, and then set your stopwatch to find out how long it takes for those sesame seeds to come out. And as I say, PC, if you're wearing glasses, use corn because you can't digest corn unless you're Mexican. So you do corn or sesame seeds in a glass of water, drink it, start your stopwatch, wait to see how long it takes to come out, and then that gives you an indication. So here's the thing. If your food comes out fast, there's a large amount of dysfunction. Um, and if it's very, very undigested, then it's probably going to be middle gut. If it's mildly undigested, it's probably going to be um, lower gut. So 
anyway, I mean, even even in saying that, it's probably even a little bit wrong. So I'll just say the speed at which it comes out should be 12 to 24 hours. The food should come out 12 to 24 hours later, or those sesame seeds slash corn should come out 12 to 24 hours later. And then you know your transit time is about right. But if things are coming out very, very quickly, then it's going to be something to do with the middle or the lower gut that you kind of got to fix up. Mm. This is a total question without notice, but I find this stuff really interesting. That whole conversation of like holding things on, like if it's not, if it's taking 36 hours or 48 hours, like in your observation, complete anecdotal insight, do you think that whole like not wanting to let go, like personality wise, people that just hold on to things and they just don't let go, do you think that personality type is potentially more likely to have those types of symptoms and the other people that are more that malabsorption or just kind of? goes in and out that can also be reflected in the macro of their personality yeah i think you definitely see that and that probably you know that could be explained by stress and the stress response and the way in which the body manufactures different hormones and chemicals to you know deal with your environment so it's probably got a bit to do with that but there's no doubt that there's certain character traits um, of someone who's constipated there's certain character traits of someone who's you know got diarrhea um there's no doubt about it we see that um but again i think that's anecdotal um, I, I don't know if there's been any kind of no. It's just a curious, or, yeah, curious. Studies, yeah. But yeah. so I think you know from what I would see, and even to the extent that you know I often explore the blood type diets, and I have been for the last thirty years using blood type as a as a basis for the types of foods we eat. And you know you get to meet so many A type blood people and O type blood people that you can almost tell, you know, ninety percent of the time, ninety five percent of the time, what blood type they got just based on asking a few questions about their diet preferences, the way in which they do things daily, um, their habits, all that sort of stuff. You can kind of work out whether or not they're A-type or O-type blood and, you know, B's a bit more tricky and AB's even trickier. But, you um, you know, the, the, there are definitely there are definitely some, um, some character traits here. So let's talk about diet now. I think we've done a fair bit on the, the upper, middle, and lower gut. I want to finish off this conversation around diet. You just mentioned blood type diet. You know, we've got keto and carnivore and FODMAPs and vegan and all the rest of it. Can you talk yeah. about, um, you know, is there a diet in your view that is more gut health friendly than others? And I know the vegan diet is, you know, what we would call on trend and has been for some time and probably will be for some time to come. But can you talk to that from a, um, a load on the gut perspective, um, you know, whether it's you want to identify one or two different diets, but what's your view in, in relation to on trend diets and um, load on the gut? I reckon, Piercy, the best approach is an omnivorous diet. So having um, the best of everything. So having lots of plants, lots of vegetables and salads, that's really important. Um, Using foods that can help promote um, short-chain fatty acid production um, through resistant starch. And so talking rice and potatoes and, you know, those sorts of starchy vegetables and plants, they're they're really important. Um, And then also, you know, consuming... Um, high quality meats um, and proteins Um, and yes you can use vegetable based proteins if you like Um, but we were talking vegetable based proteins we're probably talking tofu and tempeh we're not really talking the you know the tvp stuff that that you know that bacon bacon yeah not not firkin and turkin and whatever else there is you know what is it (laughs) firky and tofurky tofurky yeah we don't want any of that rubbish that's not good for you um and 
you know, like just just because just because it's better for the environment doesn't mean it's better for you, right? So don't get sucked in. And is it really much. better for the environment? Yeah, this is it. Right? This is it. There's uh, money money in yeah. that conversation. Um, and then, of course, lots of good fats. You know, so we're talking. If you look at the Mediterranean diet, like you look at the Mediterranean diet, it's probably the pinup poster child of the longevity culture. Anybody who eats similarly to the Mediterranean diet generally lives a long time and has a healthy gut. Mm. Um, it's when you go into restriction that things become a problem. I was listening to a podcast the other day uh, before the dip uh, with my great mates, Ravi and Murray, and they were talking about, um, you know, different diets. Anyway, so then I got on the phone and I spoke with Muzza and he was interviewed the other day on a SBS program that you hooked us up with, Piercy. Yeah, all so right. So your friend but Yusuf, yeah, your friend Yusuf um, interviewed or got Murray on to, uh, to talk about, you know, lifestyle changes and all that sort of stuff. And there's a guy that's on that show who's doing um, different types of, who's done different types of diets. And when he stops that diet, all of his rashes that he used to have come back with a vengeance, um, more so than what they used to in the past. And this is a really interesting phenomenon in that when you avoid a particular type of food for a long period of time, when you bring that food back into your body, because you already had a reaction to it in the past, your reaction will now be more significant than what it was in the past. And that's because your body's primed to address or attack or to defend against not self or something that it doesn't like in the body. And so the restriction of foods probably makes all of our conditions and symptoms even worse mm. because we restrict our intake uh, for longer periods of time than what we should. Oh, this has been a cracker. Gee whiz, there's a lot to talk about in this. And again, I said at the top of the show, we could talk about um, each topic within this episode for about an hour at a time. And what I find really interesting is that you said that an omnivorous approach is the best way to go. And when we started 100 Not Out more than 10 years ago, like episode one or two, that yeah. was your hunch. You know, I was came it? on going, the vegans are going to be the longest <laughs> lived and you were like, the omnivores are going to be the longest lived. And yeah. I often talk about that when I when I share kind of what got me into this world and it really was, you know, that beginning of our podcasting journey together. Um, but the awareness- but It is though, isn't it? It oh, is. Absolutely. Like when you we can't it. find a vegan that's 100 that's been yeah. a vegan since they were born and so we can't yeah. find someone that's on the carnivore diet or that doesn't eat vegetables. Um, yeah. You know, it's omnivorous. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And I think that's very liberating for people. Um, if yeah. you think this is fascinating and you want to experience what this is like, then you are cordially invited to join us in Ikaria and or Sardinia. Come to one, come to both. August, September 2024. All the details are at 100 Not Out. We call this a longevity experience because you can't just listen to it on a podcast or read about it in a book. It is something that you can only experience to really feel the gravity of why we feel so strongly about this. Uh, Damo, this has been a joy. Thank you for your wisdom as always. If this is uh, published on time, you and I are probably uh, coming home from uh, Ikaria and Sardinia this time 2023, and I cannot wait to do it all again with you in 2024. Same, PC. Can't wait. For everyone that has enjoyed this podcast, you can leave a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you consume good podcasts. Um, we thank you for your support of our message for 10-plus years and going strong. Cannot wait to have you on the next edition of 100 Not Out. Until then, 
continue to make the rest of your life the best of your life. Bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.